Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. I pray that you and your loved ones are doing well in this difficult time. I pray for our frontline workers and for everyone facing economic hardship right now. I hope you're able to find some peace in our Lord and that Veritas is able to help you too. There is a lot going on right now, but may I ask you to please consider making a gift to Veritas so that we can continue bringing Catholic programming to you? You can help at www.veritascatholic.com. Thank you so much. On today's show, Bishop Frank is going to talk about his plan for reopening our diocese and returning to worship and the sacraments. Also, thank you to our weekly sponsor, the Knights of Columbus Museum. Please visit the museum online at kofcmuseum.org and check out its weekly webinars. These programs are free, enjoyable, and educational. Again, kofcmuseum.org. All right, here we go. My name is Steve Lee, and I'm happy to welcome you back to Let Me Be Frank and to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good to see you as always. Thanks, Excellency. Your Excellency, uh, so our extended Lent continues. We haven't had public masses or liturgical events mm-hmm. or funerals for a long while now, and schools are closed for the rest of the year. But I know that you've been working on a plan for our diocese to return to worship, and we're all itching for a return to the sacraments and some semblance of normal life. So can you please tell us what you're working on? Absolutely. I, absolutely. I um, First, I think just simply to acknowledge that exactly how you feel, many of our people feel, our priests feel that way, and so do I, that this has been a very long Lent, you know, being put out into the desert, not being able to welcome people to worship in church, not gathering for Holy Week, Easter, um, you know, and we need to remember why the church did what it did. You know, there's a lot of controversy out there. That's the new hallmark of American life. And social media is more of a tribal battleground than it is a place of discourse. But the fundamental reason why the church did what it did was to protect life. We believe life is sacred, all life. And it was a tremendous sacrifice on the part of believers not to be able to come to public mass. But I do believe that lives were saved because of what we did. So a great sacrifice for a great reason, a great cause. But now that the pandemic, at least in our area, is, is clearer and seemingly on the decline, that is our open possibility of resuming public worship. And when Governor Lamont had indicated that he was open on May 20th to allow certain segments of society to reopen, then that was the cue for us to begin some really meticulous planning, which I announced last week. And I'm happy that even though it's optional in parishes, because worship will be outdoors temporarily, more and more parishes are announcing plans to resume the public celebration of mass outdoors. And they can begin as early as Ascension Thursday. Uh, And please God, sometime in June, we will be able to go back into our church buildings as well. Work has already begun on that second phase of planning. But I must confess, of all the things I've done in my life, 
Now, I will be 33 years a priest and 14 years a bishop. This was the most complicated planning I have ever attempted to do. And thank God, I thank God every day that the people I consider my colleagues who are more adept, more insightful, and more knowledgeable than I am in this, just did a remarkable job of putting together the, the norms that we have. Because the number one principle, Steve, remains the same, protect life. That is the number one principle, safety and well-being of our clergy and those who will come to worship. So um, I, we could talk about a bit of the details, if you're interested in how that's good, like the mechanics of it all. But before we do that, what I want everyone to understand is that no matter where we are in the country, every parish is different. Every parish looks different, has a different plant, different size worship space, alternative sites that could be used for mass, different grounds. Some have big parking lots, some have no parking lots. So there isn't one plan that fits everyone but rather it really is up to the pastor and his lay leaders to come up with a plan based on our principles that makes sense for his parish. And I have to tell you, the pastors who have submitted plans, extraordinarily well done, creative, responsive. I mean, I'm very proud of the pastors who have responded to date. Uh, I, I think this is a baby step. I call it a baby step. It's a baby step, but it's a huge step forward in hope that we can have the celebration of mass again. Yeah, I, it's um, a light at the end of this long tunnel that we've been going through. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe um, some of the details uh, for mm -hmm. the first how phase. How it's gonna work? Yes, please. Okay. There are, if in order to build a house, you build a foundation first. And this is basically building the foundation because we will not be outside for a long period of time. You know, because once the summer comes, it'll be too hot to be outside. But it gives us an opportunity not only to resume mass, the celebration of mass, but also to begin to learn those procedures that are essential even when we go inside church, inside the buildings themselves. All right, so there are a number of them. For example, to socially distance, which is probably going to be required in some format for an extended period of time. And the understanding behind social distancing is simply this. The virus is principally contracted by airborne droplets that are created when someone speaks or sneezes or sings, even sings. So six feet is the minimum distance between people that would allow those droplets when they are expelled from our mouths not to land directly on the person in front of you. So it is a fundamental piece of all our planning. Now, this is the difficulty, my friend. It's six feet in every direction of the compass. It's six feet in front of you, behind you, left and right. So outside, if we put seating outside, if there's a large enough space, the seats can be moved and arranged. In church, our pews are fixed. 
So a church that can seat 500 people for argument's sake, if you do strict social distancing, cannot fit even 50 people. So going into the church building, the congregation that can worship in the church building will not be very large at any one time. So that's one piece to this puzzle, social distancing. The other is what we call the religious exemption, which the state has given us up to 50 people. But that is subject to social distancing. So while theoretically you could have 50 people, if you can't do it with social distancing, you really cannot have 50 people. So it's the social distancing that really is the issue for us. Yeah. So outside, there are many ways to do it, right? And I could talk about some of what we're imagining, um, but just to complete what the procedures we have to learn. So that's one, social distancing. Two is registration, because what we do not want is to have people come and be turned away or to yes. say we're full, go home. That would be awful. So we're gonna to try to help people to understand the need to register for mass. That is reserve your seat. Many ways to do it. You could do it online. You could do it by the phone. You could do it with both. And every parish is gonna do it in a different way. So that's important to know. And the other very important aspect to this is Holy Communion. Right. How to give Holy Communion in such a way that it's safe, but also dignified, reverent, and respects the integrity of the Mass. So our plan to start outside hopefully will help us to start debuting that, and then we go from there. It's, uh, it sounds... The, the steps are simple, but it sounds really complicated because the registration system, how do you, you know, parishes are so big, set it up, but also you can't, if, if my family gets to go this Sunday, do we get to go next Sunday when there's another family that didn't right. get to go? I mean, it's very complicated. It's a big right. job for the pastors. Right. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And the interesting thing is everyone who's listening should remember that the obligation to come to Sunday Mass remains dispensed, even when we begin public worship. Because we can't necessarily, in every parish, accommodate everybody who ordinarily came to Sunday Mass. So they should not be held accountable in sin if they're not able to go. The other thing, though, I think is, at the beginning, a lot of people will wait before they come. I think there's a lot of apprehension there's some anxiety, particularly among the elderly. I mean, mm -hmm. if an elderly person wants to continue to watch mass live stream, I would recommend they do that until they're comfortable. And comfortable will become when it's routine for us. We do it well, we do it correctly, we do it over and over again. People may be comfortable. You know, it's interesting. Some parishes took up my suggestion and they're going to have a special mass only for people 65 years and older. Very good. Just like you do at the supermarket. Yes. So that it's a quieter celebration, but also it's, it's, there, isn't, there aren't like young people running around because children run around and, and it may make those who are older feel more comfortable to come back to worship. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So how do we do it outside? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Two ways. Two ways. One is sitting on chairs. That allows for 50 people socially distanced. Interesting thing. If a family like your family were to come to worship, to mass, you do not have to be socially distanced because you are living in the same house. So you can actually sit together, right. but everybody else has to be six feet apart from you, right? So in chairs, or we can allow people to remain in their cars that would be arranged in a certain way so that they're safely distanced, that cars could leave, God forbid there were an emergency, but could stay in their cars, mass would be celebrated outside, and when communion time comes, they'd be, whoever wishes to receive would come out of their cars in groups and come forward to receive Holy Communion. Now you may say, well, why stay in cars? Well, the truth is, if people stay in their cars, we could have more than 50 cars in certain parking lots that are big, and you can have more than one person in every car. Right. So you can actually have a significant amount of people at mass and still follow the norms from the CDC. So it's a, it's a tool that a parish could use depending on how big its congregation is. So imagine the first Sunday a parish has mass outside. You're gonna need volunteers who have to be protected. If there's registration, check registration. Please God, if a person comes with an offertory gift for the parish to deposit it somewhere, because we're not gonna pass a basket, that would not be safe, at least not now. Right. Guide people to their spaces and help with Holy Communion. So we need volunteers, these parishes need volunteers and the pastors are working to try to get them uh, um, identified and trained as well. As you said, there's a lot of work to start up again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about uh, uh, the reception of communion? Because that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's something that I know so many people and we are also in my family hungering for. Absolutely. And the norms, I believe, allow for the reception of Holy Communion that is very safe. But it's different from what we're used to, different in the sense of the following. First, for clarity's sake, there is the normative way to receive Holy Communion, which in the United States is receiving on the hand. But the alternative way to receive on the tongue remains in effect. And no bishop has the ecclesiastical authority to forbid communion on the tongue. To be clear, I would strongly encourage people to consider receiving only in the hand for the foreseeable future, because if droplets can convey the virus, saliva is probably the best way to pass on the contagion. But a person has a right to say, I still want to receive on the tongue. So we had to come up with two norms, two sets of norms, right? So for communion in the hand, everyone who comes to church, even outside, will be asked to wear a mask as we do everywhere else we go. At least for the foreseeable future, a face mask covers nose and mouth. 
Some parishes will supply them. Some parishes will ask the people to bring them. A couple of parishes are actually making them and giving them out, but it's required. So a person will come onto the communion line and will have to have the proper space between communicants. So this will be like an orderly, it won't be what we normally have, which is a long line of people. It will be almost like a few people getting up at the same time to come down, which actually could be more reverent and more quiet a way to receive Holy Communion. Everyone who receives in the hand will receive first because the level of protection giving our communion in the hand will have to be augmented once we start giving communion on the tongue, which I'll explain in a second. So, communicants will come up six feet apart. They'll be wearing their mask. And depending on what the pastor chooses to do, there's a dialogue, isn't there, between the minister and the communicant? Body of Christ responses, amen. So we need to have that dialogue, but you have to do it in a way where you're not close enough that you're breathing on each other, which we normally do at Mass, right? Without a concern. Yes. So, so one of the things, one of the ways it could be done is to ask the person to stop six feet away. Maybe someone will be there to stop. Respond to the priest and then come forward to receive Holy Communion in the hand. Another way to do it is to keep the mask on, stop relatively in front, have the dialogue, and then remove the mask to receive Holy Communion, okay? Theoretically, if you receive in the hand, you don't have to re remove the mask at all uh, until you're actually ready to receive the body and blood of Jesus, you know, the consecrated host. So the cup is not distributed. So one of the things that I'm going to alert everyone on this podcast is sometimes we don't pay attention on how we receive, how we're supposed to receive. It is extremely important that everyone receive correctly. And what does that mean? That means once you loosen your mask, you put your hands, you create the throne, one hand on the other, hold your hands out and do not move your hands, because it is very important that the priest not touch your hand by giving the host. Not for his safety, but for the safety of everyone who comes after you on the communion line. Yes. So it's important not to move your hand, and the priest will place the host in the palm of your hand, please God not touching your hand, because if he does, there will have to be, right next to him, a station to sanitize his hands before he gives out communion to the next person. The priest will be wearing a mask, okay, throughout the distribution of Holy Communion. The communicant can't because you actually have to receive, so you have to open your mouth to place our Lord Jesus on your tongue. So, but the priest will be wearing a mask. So that's how we hope communion can be distributed in a safe way. Then if a person chooses to receive on the tongue, they would wait. And then in addition to socially distancing coming up, the person would again have to have this dialogue. And then when the priest offers the host, 
Every time he does that, he will have to sanitize his hands, both hands, every time he gives out, because the person is breathing on his hand. So we have right. to make sure that there is no possibility of passing on, in an asymptomatic person, the virus to someone else. So some pastors ask, can they still give out Holy Communion at the altar rail? And the answer is yes, but every time it's used, it have to be wiped down, and people have to be six feet apart. Right. Wow. At the altar rail. So it's going to take a few times for people to get used to this new routine so that when we go back into the church building, we're going to use the exact same routine. The only difference in church, which is a big difference, is that there is a process to sanitize the church after every mass, which you don't have outside. And that we have to research, get correct, and make sure we do correctly in between mass celebrations. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to think about what we do in our, our family always receives on the tongue mm -hmm. and my kids don't, I don't think they even know how to receive in the hand. And, mm -hmm. but I, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm concerned. We have an immunocompromised person in our family and I'm concerned about that. So yeah, uh, that's, thank you for those guidelines. Right. It, right. I, I would, I, may I just offer one spiritual bit of advice? Yes. And not just to you, Steve, but to anyone who's listening. I think I, it's, 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 there's obviously there's hundreds of years of tradition of receiving on the tongue. And I remember sister teaching us in grammar school a thousand years ago when I was young and had hair and all the, you know, I was I had <laughs> black hair and all the rest. Uh, sister said, your hands are not worthy to touch the body of Jesus. Exactly. I'll never forget it. Sister Thomas Bridget, my fifth grade teacher. I, I, to this day, it was like seared in my mind. And of course, what she was trying to say is, I think, that there's a reverence, there's a disposition, and, you know, if you, only the priest's hands is consecrated, right? Which is true. But as I've grown older, I've come to realize that if it's a question of, of reverent, dignified, and into being the state of grace, you do have to realize that our tongue sins as much as our hands. Right. <laughs> right? So in a case like this, it's a personal choice to make. But like you said, I admire you for, for considering what the possibilities could be because the, the, the difficulty with this pandemic is that it is a silent, invisible killer. Yes. And what's going on with our children is so deeply, deeply worrisome with this syndrome that is now, is, is, is literally coming to the fore in almost 200 children now nationwide, weeks after they overcame the coronavirus. Mm. Right. And not to become melodramatic, but I'm deeply worried because I, I think to myself, well, if this is what's going to happen four weeks after one thought they were cured or didn't even know they were sick, what's four months from now? I mean, yes. it's so scary. Yeah. So this is not over by any stretch of the imagination. It's, um, uh, 
It's so good though that um, to see it's refreshing or not refreshing. What's the word? It's it's you know to see that things are starting to open up. We're gonna get. It's gonna look different. It's reassuring and it's gonna look different. But to get to back to some little bits of of normality in our life, you know, time in isolation. Yeah, it's been. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I think if this is the new normal for a while, then I think we can start giving serious thought to not only doing a reservation system, but allowing individuals who may have medical conditions, preference at certain masses, so that they have the reassurance that we're doing everything we can to try to to protect them. And perhaps going back to an idea of a family mass, when families come together, um, because it's good for, for young people to see each other, even though they really can't interact, right? So it depends how long this new normal is the enduring normal. I have no idea. So we'll, yeah. we'll do the best. But I absolutely agree. It's, it's the first sign of tangible hope that we can get back to being together as a community. That is invaluable, I think. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic update, Excellency. I know our listeners will be very happy to know that there is a path that you've been working on with our pastors to getting back to receiving the sacraments. Um, it's a big relief. Um, we need to take and a break. I can give you more hope. May I give you more hope? Yes. And the more hope is we have already started writing out the norms for phase two. Fantastic. So, so we're getting there slowly. We're getting there. And any um, any time frame as to when you might release phase two or uh, not yet? Uh, I uh, I don't know. I okay. I, I can tell you what my hope is. My hope is that sometime in June we will be back in our church buildings, and I, I think that is reasonable. I think that is reasonable. When in June, I'm not exactly sure, but I think that is more than reasonable. And my only assurance I could give to our listeners is. As soon as it is feasible and safe, we will go. There is no reason not to. So, wonderful. We'll keep yeah. working on it. And in the meantime, the, uh, the church year keeps moving. We've got the Ascension and Pentecost coming up. So, when we come back from the break, Excellency, we'll talk about those. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Catholic Radio works. And now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Hey all, we're back on Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. So, Excellency, uh, as we mentioned uh, going into the break, we have a couple important dates coming up, the Ascension and Pentecost. So, uh, let's start with the Ascension. So, we we profess every time we recite the Nicene Creed, Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You were there, not not at the time of the Ascension, but... (laughs) I was going to say, I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) But you were there, Excellency, uh, visiting Mount Olivet, right, In in the Holy Land? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. In the Church of the Ascension, there's a big hole in the middle of it. Mm. <laughs> right? See, the Ascension, 40 days after the resurrection, when the Lord 
ascends to the right hand of God, his father and our father, and prepares for the birth of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. All right. It is a fascinating article of faith to consider. Now, let's take a deep breath. When the word took on flesh and took on a true human nature, prior to the incarnation, God who is infinite and eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was a tr trinity of divine persons in perfect love forever. In the ascension, it is the glorified Christ who returns to the Father, which means his glorified humanity becomes one in the Trinity. So in the very heart of God is the humanity of Jesus as a promise that we who are human can share in the very life of God. That is an astonishing, astonishing affirmation of the intimate union between God and man, mankind, humanity. So it's the glorification of Christ, resurrected and ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, is the promise that we will sit at the right hand of Christ in heaven, which is what heaven is. So, you know, in many ways, it's almost like the forgotten feast, the ascension. Because Easter, Christ conquers death, Pentecost is the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And ascension almost gives the impression, well, Jesus finished his work, he went back home, that's it, we're done. But it's, it's a feast as much about us as it is about him that most people forget. Yes, of course, he ascended into heaven, because rightfully so, he's fully God. And, and he took his place in divine majesty and power and grandeur and glory, which he gave up voluntarily in the incarnation, emptying himself, the kenosis we talked about a few weeks ago. But it's also the promise for us. Humanity has no more dignified place. It's impossible than the humanity of Jesus fully glorified now in the life of the Trinity. It's, just, it's absolutely astonishing, the claim of Christian life. It's amazing. So it, it, uh, it prefigures it, um, our own bodily uh, resurrections. Right. And therefore, in the life of God, there is the glorified bodily life of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Unbelievable. And in a world, and in a world that we've talked about before, looks at the body as an appendix to who I am, as an addition to who I am, as non-essential to who I am, Christian faith screams out the opposite. Yeah. So that the body is essentially a part of who you are. It is destined for glory in the, in the risen Christ. And it needs to have its own integrity, respect, right? It's, it's quite the message. It's quite for today, message. yes. Mm -hmm. yep. And it's the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, basically, right? Yes, that's right. 
That's right. And right before mm-hmm. Jesus ascends, he uh, gives his uh, apostles and his disciples the Great Commission, which is... Correct. Right. So he's preparing them. So in a sense, he's telling them what he needs for them to do, what he asks them to do. Then in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, now that Christ ascended, the one advocate who then sends the other advocate, then he gives us the means and the grace and the power to do what he asks. First he tells us, then he gives us the, the, the grace to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah. Which is another interesting theological question. Fascinating theological insight, which is at the heart of Pentecost, which we can talk about. Yes, so let's, I mean, this, this takes us right into Pentecost. So what should we know about mm-hmm. Pentecost? It's nature and adoption. Nature and adoption, fundamental to Christian life. What do I mean? Everything Jesus did in his life, from his emptying in the moment of his birth, at first his, his, his conception and then birth into human life, proclamation of the kingdom, his death, his resurrection and his ascension are his. They are his, but he is the savior and redeemer. He is God made man. How do they become ours? Pentecost. They become ours through the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, who allows us to be grafted, Paul says, adopted into the life of God so that what Christ has, by virtue of who he is, he extends to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So one could say, if there were no Pentecost, we could be celebrating all of the great mysteries of, the, of, the, of Christ's life, the Paschal mysteries, but not have gained the benefit for our personal salvation unless the Holy Spirit came. And through the grace of the Spirit, in the power of the risen Lord to give to us what Christ had won for himself, right? So it's fundamental, Pentecost, and that's why it's the birth of the church, which we're like 2,000, roughly almost 2,000 years old, give or take. Right. And so so that that power comes to us uh, in confirmation, or is it in baptism, or is it both? Baptism. Okay. Both, but baptism first and foremost, baptism. Okay. So we say we participate in grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the fathers speak of dying, we have already died and risen with Christ in baptism. So confirmation is the confirming of baptism. Well, it's the, conf- it's the confirming of baptism. So who actually is confirming in confirmation? That's an interesting question. Yeah, who, who is it? Is it? Is it not the bishop? The bishop is the means of confirming, but is it the disciple who confirms his or her faith in Christ? Yes, absolutely. Is it God the Father confirming the promises he made to his children in baptism that his love is everlasting? and that what his son won is ours? Yes, it is. God the Father confirms our baptism, 
And we confirm our willingness to live as disciples by inviting the Spirit to complete, if one could say, that anointing, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the seven gifts, the seven divine gifts. Yeah. So uh, I guess it's a good time then to talk about those seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. They are seven. Let me ask you a question first then. Yes. Of the seven that you can remember, which is the one that resonates in your heart the most? Is there one? Which one resonates the most? Um, so a bunch of them feel like they're so similar. Uh, wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Those right. feel like they're, they're, they're similar mm-hmm. to me. Um, I would say uh, fear of God. Ah. To, <laughs> ah. to understand okay. you know, our, our position relative to him. Yeah, because the fear there is not fear like fear that you're in a, in a, as a little child in a room that's dark and you're afraid for your life. It's awe at the majesty and the power and the beauty and the glory and the wonder of God that has drawn so close, right? Has drawn so close. The one gift that resonates in my heart is courage. Hmm. It's courage. To be able to persevere and if I'm being poetic a bit, is to allow the Holy Spirit to give us the power to tread where other women and men fear to go. Or to say the word that no one else has the, the courage to say. Or to persevere when others would just tell you to compromise or be politically correct. Yes. Courage is in short demand in the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> I could be so blunt. Uh, but it should not be short, but, but it has to be in abundance in believers. Yes. Right? And, and I, if there's an occasion of pride in my life, it is at times when I take courage, the gift of courage, and make it mine, and not necessarily make it what it is, a divine gift in service of Christ. That could be my Brooklyn upbringing when it becomes more a question of asserting my ego than being a servant of the Lord's will. But courage is meant to do the second. It's not meant to do the first. Yeah. Right? Politicians yeah. have perfected the first. <laughs> okay. we're, we're about something else. Right? <laughs> it seem, well, it's, it seems like every, um, every one of these gifts could have that... that um, that personal twist where we kind of take it away from uh, a focus on, on our relationship with, with the Lord and make it about us. Right. Right. Absolutely. That's the, that's the great temptation of the fall, right? The sin of the fall is pride. Yeah. You know, so uh, where is the Holy Spirit then? Holy Spirit is invisible. Can't see him, can't touch him, yet he's real. And Uh, Last Sunday, I preached in my homily about how the world that we live in that has become so material and so focused in on the things you can touch and taste and buy and sell and own has turned upside down because the, the invisible killer is here in our midst. And we can't see the virus with the naked eye. You can't touch it with the naked hand. 
But you know it's here because it's effects. You see its effects. So the yeah. same is true with the Holy Spirit. He's here and he's real. He is really real. And his effects are all around us if we had the eyes to see it. Yeah. Right? He's, we have, we have a, a God who is uh, actively interested in our lives and in our world. And he's right. at work in our lives. Right. So I, I just wanted to... Yes, yes, Excellency. I'm just going to tell you a quick story. Yes. When I was a student priest in Rome, the first year, I signed up for all the Holy Week celebrations at, at the Vatican. And of course, St. John Paul was Pope at the time. And that Easter Sunday, I signed up to be one of the priests who give, gave out Holy Communion. Another priest friend of mine from the Casa was with me. There were like 300 priests. And we were in the Basilica when Mass first began, and then we came out for the Eucharistic prayer and then distribution of Holy Communion. Okay. Now, how's, how it happened, I'm not exactly sure. But when the lineup, when we went outside, myself and this priest friend of mine were the first and second persons on the line behind the Holy Father. And there were 298 priests aside of us and behind us. So I had an unencumbered view. So it was myself, the Holy Father, with his concelebrants, and the rest of humanity in the piazza. On a beautiful day, Roman day, not a cloud in the sky. And I saw the Holy Spirit with my own eyes. I saw, you say, he's visible with his, by the effects of his presence. There was the church in front of me. Every continent, race, culture, in one piazza, 300,000 strong, all the way to the Tiber, roaring out the responses, singing at the end of man's, some of them dancing in their places. It was almost like my own mini Pentecost. You say, well, how could this be unless the Holy Spirit has come down and to take this ragtag group of people that have nothing in common and making us one community of faith around Peter. It was almost like, in a poetic way, being in the upper room with the apostles and seeing the outpouring of what only God could do. Only God could bring that sort of unity and joy and celebration. Only God can do that. No human agency could do that in a lasting way. Yeah. It was just an absolute, it, it, it's just burned in my memory, please God, until, please God, I get to heaven, and then I'll have the real deal, the real thing, in its yeah. fullness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, uh, so um, you anticipated my question. I was going to ask you if you'd ever seen the Holy Spirit at work in your life or experiences, and mm -hmm. that's beautiful. Um, and to see the, the church the Catholicism, the small c Catholicism, right? The universal, universality of the church. Mm -hmm. how, how can we, as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, how can we um, try to keep our eyes open for the Holy Spirit at work in our day-to-day? 
in my confirmation homily, in one of my confirmation, because I have a whole few of them now, I mean, all these years, um, one confirmation homily, I make the observation to the young people that the Holy Spirit comes to us to help us to see what the world is blind to and to become blind to the things the world wants us to see. So let me illustrate it for a second in answer to your question. To become blind to what the world sees, the world sees color of skin and wealth and clothing and occupation and achievement as issues that divide us, that separate us. Okay? And the truth of the matter is, um, God's blind to all those things. It makes no difference what language my parents spoke or what language I speak or where I was born or how much money I have in the bank. God doesn't give an iota of attention to any of that for all his children. The Holy Spirit can help us to be blind, but it can also help us to see because the eyes of faith will recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit when the world does not recognize it does it not recognize him or ascribes another causality to what is obviously an inbreaking of God's presence in your life. And allow me one other story, if I may. When I was a, a seminarian at St. Sylvester's in City Line, which is on the border of Brooklyn and Queens, this was 1985, so it's ancient history. And I was in my little Chevette, my little blue Chevette, <laughs> on my way to Queens College, to, to a recital of a dear friend of mine, an oboist. And it was Halloween. And it was a, um, I was on, on Woodhaven Boulevard, which is in Queens, big thoroughfare in Queens. Now, I'll make a public admission. In those days, being a young man, uh, coming out of the neighborhood, going into the seminary, I wasn't always obedient to wearing a seatbelt. Hmm. And on this one particular day, I left St. Sylvester's no seatbelt on. And, and this is a true story. You talk about the intervention of the Holy Spirit and the protection of the mantle of the great mother of God. I stopped three times twice when I stopped I had this distinct feeling this gnawing feeling this voice to say put your seatbelt on put your seatbelt on put your seatbelt on and at the second stop on Jamaica and Woodhaven Boulevard right at that corner going northbound I put my seatbelt on the third time when I stopped, I was across from what used to be the Drake Theater, I'm not sure if it's still there or not, further up Woodhaven Boulevard, on the way to Queen Center. And a man in a truck, a truck, a truck, who was intoxicated to the point where he could not walk straight, did not see me and struck me from behind. And my Chevette was airborne 220 feet. Oh my word. 
forward. And when I came to, there was a man staring at me. And I had no idea. My first question is, who are you? Not realizing that my, my bucket had collapsed. The roof of the car had split open. The bumper of the car had detached from the from the, the bumper from the truck had detached from the trunk, was maybe three inches from my head. The hatchback was completely destroyed. And Steve, I walked out without a scratch. Wow. And I went to the hospital, because they insisted. And they released me. Now, if there was not, and you know, some people say, oh, that's chance, coincidence, good luck. There is, it's insane. Well, well it's all insane. What well, good luck. That is the direct inf- intervention of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I believe through the intercession of the mother of God. Yeah. Right? And that was extraordinary. But you know what? You and I have those whisperings every single day. If only we would quiet our minds to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. What I just described, it seems extraordinary, would be ordinary to most people. And the great saints knew that, and they lived that way, starting with Mother Teresa in our own age, knew that, the communion that they had, because they could hear and see the promptings which the rest of the world is blind to. Yeah. I don't want to stop, but we need to take a break, and uh, we'll come back and answer questions. Okay. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, uh, this week we got an email from Sean, who is a student at Mount St. Mary's University. And actually, he says that he was in your first confirmation group as uh, Bishop of Bridgeport, and he also went with you to World Youth Day. So you may know who... Really? Who wrote... Oh, great. I also, I guess, I also let you know that Sean wrote in his email, he said that you're awesome and he's thankful for you. So... Well, he is a very intelligent young man. That's what we <laughs> right. need to say. <laughs> right. And, and God see, bless him. You butter us up and you get on the show, right? <laughs> Ca- cash works too, by the way. No, no, it doesn't. But uh, <laughs> um, all right. So let me get to the question. So Sean's question is, what are the most influential theological or spiritual books that you've read that you would recommend? Okay. Um, I must confess, there are a number of ways to answer this question, but I'm going to be very personal and answer it in a very specific way. One of the most important books I've ever read that is of a spiritual, that caused a spiritual reawakening in me was The Confessions by St. Augustine. And the reason that is the case is because Augustine, like Paul, St. Paul, I find to be kindred spirits. And for St. Augustine, 
he was in many ways a man who um, struggled to find the right place for his own gifts and talents to be in service of the faith. We all know about his moral struggles. What I found fascinating in the confessions was how Augustine's intellect was as much an impediment to his conversion as it was an aid to his conversion precisely because he could not make the connection with his heart and his mind. We talked about this in a previous podcast. The longest distance to walk is, is between one's mind and one's heart. So that famous line in Augustine, you know, uh, Lord, I, you know, I pray for my conversion, but not yet. Not yet. Right. Because it's easy to intellectualize but then when it becomes a matter of the heart, then you're looking for a real commitment. So in my much earlier life, as I look back, it was much more of a cultural and intellectual exercise than it was an existential one. It was only when I went into the seminary, and precisely because of seminary formation, that I started to walk that path really to the heart in a mature way not just in uh, like a, a, a childish way, in a really mature way. So I came to really appreciate the genius of Augustine and his reliance on grace, which is very Pauline, and the image of the city of God, which was in his other book, and his humanness. You know, that one passage in Confessions when he talks about Monica and her dying, it just so resonates in my heart because once that which we believe infects your heart, then you commit and then there's no looking back. And Augustine was a seminal figure in my early seminary formation that helped that to happen in my own life in a very real way. So I would recommend everyone to read the Confessions. It's not the easiest reading, but... It is, it's authentic reading, and it's, very, it's a very um, human glimpse into what I call the struggle of the heart. Yes. Yeah. So that would be my recommendation. Great. I want to invite uh, everyone who's listening to email questions at veritascatholic.com. Send us your questions for uh, Bishop Frank and... Be sure to butter us up when you do. <laughs> well, you so, get the questions, remember. <laughs> uh, you, you get all the, uh, rightly so, you get all the, the buttering up. Um, that, that does it for us this week. Uh, thank you for another fantastic week, Bishop Frank. If I could, I would give you, I'll give you a virtual high five. And uh, <laughs> There you go, there you go. Let, there you go. Uh, let me give another, uh, yeah, go ahead. Excellent. No, I said they, people, uh, people now realize that in this technology we're using, we are in different locations, but we can still see each other virtually. Yes. Which is kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, let me give another nod to the Knights of Columbus Museum for sponsoring this program. They help, let me be frank, bring you solid Catholic content each week. So please check out kofcmuseum.org for more good content for your family. 
And Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, uh, would you please give us your blessing? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send the power of your Holy Spirit upon us in this time of challenge and need to grant us greater wisdom, deeper courage, and a more resolute spirit to persevere in patience, to do what you ask of us, to be your hands, your eyes, your feet, and your heart of compassion in this very troubled world. Bless us, bless those whom we love, and keep us safe in your love. For we ask this as we ask all things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Steve, Thanks. I'll see you next week. See you next week, Excellency. Thank you. All the best. God bless you.